1: Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Posse of the People. On this episode, it's me, Diara, Miles, and Kaya talking about the news that you didn't hear in the past week, the news that is about race and justice that doesn't always bubble to be national headlines, but are actually big things in people's lives. Then I sit down with health equity researcher Lawrence Brown to talk about his new book, The Black Butterfly, The Harmful Politics of Race and Space in America. Great interview. I've known Dr. Brown, but hadn't known his work all that well until this conversation. Another Baltimore guy. Here we go. My advice for this week, you know, I've been working out and and trying to, you know, do the fitness journey well. And the best advice I'd have is like every little bit counts. What made this go around actually work for me is like, I wasn't stressed about a certain weight or da-da-da. It was like, I just want to like work out a little bit every day. That's how this started. And I like didn't put the pressure on myself. It was like, let's just work out a little bit. And I did it and did it. And like, I, I feel myself getting stronger. And I'm like, this is amazing. Uh, but it was it was definitely this idea of like, every little bit counts. Before I tried to like, you know, I'm like, I'm going to do the fitness journey. And I tried to bite off too much at the beginning. And it's like this time, the steps, the baby steps really did add up. So every little bit counts
2: family welcome to this halloween edition of pod save the people i mean we really ain't doing nothing about no halloween but hoping everybody's safe out there i'm diara ballinger you can find me on instagram and i don't know if i'm using twitter no more at diara ballinger
3: i'm miles e johnson You can find me at Feral Rapture on Instagram and the ghost of Twitter. Oh
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm Kaya Henderson. (laughs) Oh my gosh. At Henderson Kaya on Twitter. um, At Kaya Shines on Instagram since it seems we're all making a dearly departed move. (laughs)
1: <laughs> this is Deray I'm DIY on Twitter.
2: News of the week. Elon Musk, the astronaut, has purchased <laughs> Twitter. He's already got the goons back on online. He's already said that he is against all this you know, being politically correct. So you could say the N-word how many ever times you want to say it on the Ooh, Twitter. Ouch. So I'm, listen, I, I have a Twitter account in which anyone who follows me knows all I do is retweet. Cause that's about all I know how to do on Twitter. I don't know how many characters could go on the box. I don't. So I just feel like, you know, for those like DeRay, who have a jillion followers, You know, I never learned Twitter, so I'm not missing anything now in in my now abandoning of Twitter. But I do worry for this platform that has been used for movement work and for activism, thinking of what's going on in Iran right now. Like, it's, it's a shame that now it's owned by this guy. But also I just worry, was he the only purchaser? Why sell to Elon Musk? Well,
0: He's the only one who could dollars. afford it. He's the only one who could afford it. child.
2: but why was he? I'm about to call him Jack Zuckerberg? What's his name?
3: <laughs> That's right,
0: Mark.
2: Mark. Jack Dorsey. Mark Jack. not Jack. Oh, Jack Dorsey. Mark. Mark Dorsey. Not the, no, Jack Zuckerberg. Jack. <laughs> why did he? But why you need to sell it right now? I don't think he's hurting for homes or anything. Like, I just don't understand why. Like, it was it a, what a, like a board or a shareholder pushing to have it sold? I don't know. We'll get into it. But it's just, I'm feeling, you know, actually pretty terrified about it. Like, Donald Trump getting back on this. this platform is really scary to me. I think also just... You know, the fact that Nancy Pelosi's house was evaded and her husband beaten with a hammer because of right wing extremists. It's just like it is it is it is terrifying to see what this platform has the power to do in the pursuit of evil. So I just I guess I'm nervous about what may come to be.
1: Wait, just as a matter of just as a matter of clarity, remember that the reason why Elon got it is that when he when he made that offer to buy it, he bought he made an offer at a, a price dramatically higher than the actual stock price of Twitter. So they sold it because it was like a financial win for the company. They got it like the company was able to sell the shares at much higher than the actual market price, and that's what they were suing him about. So they weren't looking to sell Twitter. He made an impossible offer to refuse, essentially. But it goes to show that, like, the profit motive was greater than the impact on the world motive, and that is what we are struggling through right now. Yeah, That's I helpful
0: a, to remember, right? That's a really important thing to remember.
3: I thought it was an interesting decision for Jack Dorsey, too, because I think that, out of all of the, like, white bread billionaires, he seemed to be, like, the most um, mor- morally <laughs> moral. <laughs> Somebody who's interested in politics that seemed aligned with the left, uh, felt like he wasn't just, like, he would... I've I heard rumors of him donating to things that seem aligned with more um, left and politics so it was just interesting for him to do something so incredibly irresponsible and i think that it's also interesting to see that no matter what greed and white supremacy still wins if 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 it's all if it all comes back down to the money no matter what else you believe in or heard about or how many people try to have woke talks with you or whatever Is going on, you still end up doing the white supremacist greedy thing. I think that's interesting. And I think it is sad because I don't think there's any other platform that, for me, being just selfish and thinking about it, that I could have bridged my thoughts into a career. So as somebody who has a high school degree and did not come from any type of financial privilege... Twitter was a bridge for me to make a life for myself based off of my thoughts, based off of my perspectives and the network I can build. And it, for a moment, was that kind of reiteration of an American dream and of free speech. Because here I was in a small spot in Atlanta tweeting my opinions for free and columnists from Vice, thought I was interested in, gave me a gig, um, uh, editors, from, oh, me, editors from Vice, editors from New York Times, so that was interesting, and gave me a gig. Um, I was able to leverage all that to f- uh, finally be invited to be a professor at the new school and and teach creative writing. So, of course, this didn't all happen at, at one time, but over the course of maybe five years, all that happened to me from ba- about age 20, 21 to 26, 27, that was... The, Twitter was the vehicle that I used to bridge it, and I think it's sad that now somebody who has dissenting opinions, provocative opinions, opinions that are maybe on the left or feminist or whatever, now those people won't feel safe to discuss things, and they can't do without feeling harassment, and there's already so much... Circular, cyclical BS conversations on Twitter already, but then to just let the floodgates open on people who are interested in creating hate speech—it's just—it's just a little sad. It's—it's it's sad. It's—it's—it's—it's it's, 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 you know, RIP, RIP, Twitter, right next to Queen Elizabeth. You know, they both—I <laughs> guess—had their good runs. Oh and-
1: god. <laughs>
0: I mean, I, I think I'm I'm on a wait and see kind of a thing. I feel like I'm clear about the doom that could happen. Um, but for me, like I'm thinking about it from two different perspectives. One is like, what what are the implications for regular everyday users of Twitter? Like I'm interested to see, I'm not a super user the way Miles, you and DeRay are, but I'm also not just a retweeter like Diara is. I'm somewhere in the middle. And I'm interested to see like what my day-to-day Twitter, how my day-to-day Twitter experience changes, um, if it does. Um, I'm also really interested to watch how advertisers respond, right? Because Miles, to your point, at the end of the day, it all comes down to money. And if advertisers are spooked by what is now allowed to happen on Twitter, then it's over. Uh, Elon, Pelon, right, <laughs> the advertisers are no longer interested, then that is truly the end of Twitter. So um, I'm interested to see how this evolves. I also don't, I don't, uh, you know, I don't understand what his motivation is in buying Twitter, and I understand his commitment to spe- free speech and blah, blah. Um, but I also understand that he's putting together some kind of content advisory committee. And so uh, this is all still a, an an evolving saga to watch.
2: And, and I did, Kaya, to your point, I did read something about um, some big companies already building a coalition saying that they were going to drop their ads if he brought Donald Trump back. So I think, yeah, I mean, maybe the same marketplace that created conditions for this purchase will also create conditions for its accountability.
1: Yeah, the the only thing I'll add is just as a... Um... <clears throat> Point of clarification and, you know, we should hold all the people who are part of helping, helping this happen accountable is that the interesting thing, and like this is a part of what Jack has said publicly, right, is that like he was like it was a mistake to make it a company. And he didn't own, you know, he didn't have the power to stop the sale of Twitter because he didn't own the majority of shares any longer. And none of them, Ev, Biz, and Jack, no longer have a controlling stake in Twitter. So it was like it became a market thing, which is sort of interesting. And I didn't know that Saudi Arabia owned such a huge part of Twitter and they have remained investors um, as Elon is there. And then, Kaya, to your point, there's a thread going around that says that – Elon's goal is to destroy it from the inside out, to tank Twitter so that they can build something else. But that was like the goal. But it's interesting because if that happens, you know, we'll see what happens to, you know, he he doesn't have the liquid cash to actually buy Twitter. Right. It's like Tesla. So it's like, does this inadvertently tank your other company? So we'll see. But again, rich people problems like who that's
0: a lot of money to tank a company like where?
1: Rich people problems. Other people, we we try to feed people, right? And you up here destroying companies is
3: like fodder. Anyway, let's go to the news. My news is about Kanye West, y'all.
1: What?
3: (laughs) Listen, on my side of culture, this really—he's really, he's really has, he has a stronghold on my side of culture and what I end up reading and caring about. And I can't really avoid it, even though it feels like a little bit of a weekly thing, but... Kanye West uh, lost all of his uh, advertisers, or all uh, all the people he was doing uh, work with. So that means Adidas. That means TJ Maxx. That's embarrassing. So one of the things, too, that really, that really got me, that I wanted to really sit and meditate on, was the list of people who announced publicly that they were no longer with Kanye West. And when TJ Maxx said it, I said, now, is that not, like, just the, the extra punch after somebody already gets there? But
2: Miles, also Goodwill. Goodwill was also, <laughs> like... Isn't
3: that wild? said don't want
2: away <laughs> crap. We're
3: no. not selling it. We're not
0: giving it away. We're not sending it to people in foreign countries.
3: <laughs> You're not... <laughs> I'm like, oh my! I was like, and you know, Yeezy has the desert boots, so I'm like, that that is useful for uh, for a lot of people. <laughs> There's the functionality of it, but yeah, he has had the worst week ever. Um, George Floyd's family is suing him. He uh, came back and accused the family of greed because one time in the past he donated um, money to, to to the family, apparently. So all these things are happening to Kanye West at one time, and it's. Kind of amazing to see based off of anti Semitism. And not amazing in the positive way, but just amazing as in like, wow, I don't recall seeing somebody just chip away at their legacy and in 30 days it just be dust. Um Yeah. I had to bring it to the podcast. I wanted to see what y'all thought about this chipping away at his legacy, what y'all think about the companies and their reactions to it. Uh, does this make you like TJ Maxx more? I always liked their assorted, (laughs) I always liked their very curated assortment of colored Buddhas. I thought that was very tasteful. And Reeves, Goodwill has always been a family favorite of mine. And I like that they aligned with, you know, not anti-Semitic talk. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, Kanye West.
1: Miles, what's your take on him getting escorted out of the Skechers headquarters?
3: Skechers, so, wow. So, so, I don't have a specific, like my, my my very intellectual feminist take on that moment. Is haha. <laughs> but my <laughs> my bigger thing that I think is interesting about Kanye West is. You know, there's this thing that lawyers say, that I've heard lawyers say all the time. It's like, in order to protect free speech, you have to protect the most um, hateful speech and stuff like that. And I do think it's interesting to see... Value in America shift because we're such an idea nation, and we're and most people who get a lot of money and get a lot of power in this culture is based off ideas, not based off of any type of like sweat or blood that they put into anything. And it's just really interesting to see how ephemeral influence and power can be just based off of a contrary um hateful anti Semitic idea and it's just it's not like the oil running out. It's not the gold drying up. It's just the idea totally sunk (laughs) your legacy in in, in the speech of of the the idea. But part of
0: the way the idea even comes to the fore is through the media, right? And we've seen enough um, examples of the power of, of the media creating people and destroying people. And I think we don't I don't think that we appropriately appreciate how dangerous we're all all for it when you're riding high and on the way up. But that very same institution is the thing that can clearly tell you apart. Yes, the companies as well. But when you look at the media coverage, um, because there was a time where the media would say, you know what, Kanye is going through a mental health issue. And before, decades ago, you know, the media would stay away from him because we actually had some boundaries around humanity and whatnot. Um, And now it's it's just a, you know uh food fight right and so that thing that propelled you also takes you down and i think when you're a influencer you got to know that, that ha- that's possible
3: yeah and who's who's the owner of um tmz harvey <clears throat> oh the little dude yeah Har- <laughs> what's harvey's yes. last harvey, name harvey i don't know harvey. yeah not uh what is his name harvey we'll just call him harvey so Harvey's, so Harvey's the owner of TMZ. What I thought was really interesting, too, and I was actually, I had, like, an um, eagle's eye on this because Kathy Griffin talked about Har- Harvey Levin. Um, Levin. Um, I had an eagle's eye on this because I remember watching the Kathy Griffin um, doc- uh, documentary about when she got uh, canceled and blah, blah, blah. I'm connecting this to Kanye West because Kanye West publicly said something to Harvey, too, and kind of t- talked... Cash, you know what about Harvey on 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 Drink Champs, just smoking weed and drinking alcohol and just ruining his like his life, one anti-Semitic trope at a time. And, and uh, it was funny because looking at TMZ now, TMZ really covered every single. The reason why we know the TJ Maxx and the like, the little every little of these places and the why it even became a joke is because. TMZ created a story around every single store that said they wouldn't um, work with uh, Kanye West. And I thought that was interesting, too, that he has seemed to, of course, offend the Jewish community, but also burn so many bridges of people who can make sure that this is just not something that will brush over to, to keep on feeding the fire more wood and more oil. And it's just, it's just really interesting to see. And it's not like, again, for my generation, the only person who I can think of seeing this with was like OJ when I was really young and Harvey Weinstein, but those were all action-based things. And this is just interesting because I'm like, yo, I feel like maybe we're... Like, are we in a smarter generation? That fact that it's happening because of I because of hateful ideas, does I don't know, does this make us more?
1: The only thing I'd add is it is a couple of things. One is all the news came out that showed that he'd actually been anti-Semitic and pretty hateful and a big lover of Hitler for a long time. That it's not new. So one of the things that's so interesting about TMZ is that in that interview, The Slavery is a Choice interview, Miles. He also praised Hitler and TMZ cut that out. They didn't. And that was back in 2018. They they didn't air that, even though he said it then. And then these other places have come out and said, oh, no, he actually, you know, uh, Letterman, you know, the, the show that Letterman has, like Letterman has that like night that he praised Hitler on that and they edited it out. And and people who were in it, because that's a live taping, people who were there were like, it was really uncomfortable and da-da-da. But it's so interesting that we didn't know that nobody said anything about that. And shout out to... Uh, What's the LeBron show? The chair, the couch, the barbershop thing? The shop. The (laughs) shop. I know some. Shout out to them for being like, you know what? We will just not participate. We're not going to do this. He said some hateful things and we're just not going to do it. And then the second thing I think, Miles, your macro point is right on is that like, uh, this is ephemeral, that like fame, all that stuff is like here today, gone tomorrow. And for Kanye to say he now knows. What George Floyd went through because he got his deals taken away is perhaps it's like it just it's just consistently offensive and 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 I don't know you know it I actually do like that there are consequences and really public consequences because I do think it's sending a message to people that if Kanye can lose things you certainly can lose things.
3: But what does this? Oh, sorry. Uh, Kai, because this was a question for all the grown, like all the all the grown ups to me. <laughs> but like, what, what what does what does it mean though that TMZ had this anti-Semitic material, decided to edit it out, and now it had to get here in order for it to be addressed? Like, what does it mean that like the 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 media these these platforms sa- saved his life? And then ultimately, like ended his life. But they, it, but it, but if you really cared about somebody who's not anti-Semitic or somebody who's hateful, not having a platform and not, you know, gaining power and access and fame and deplatforming people with hateful ideas, why hide it? And what was the like? It's just it, like I'm like it. it it all feels a little like I don't want to say nefarious. Maybe nefarious. It's just like why like why why did you not let us know?
0: I don't I, I don't know the answer to that question, right? I could <laughs> I could guess that like anti-blackness sells, right? And that was an incredibly provocative clip of of Kanye's comments around slavery, of Van Lathan's takedown, like that whole thing was a whole moment. And I think people decided to capitalize on that moment instead of, uh, because of that moment, you know, sold ads, that moment was lucrative. And I think, you know, folks it ignored or pushed aside, whatever the rest. I mean I, I'm I'm most interested at this point in um in in how Kanye tries to orchestrate his, you know, survivorship, survivor ness. And you already see it coming, right, Miles, in the piece that you posted. Now all of a sudden he's talking about he done hurt the black pe- the blacks, his people. The blacks? The blacks are a football team in new zealand that's who the blacks are but um he's you know he hurt the black people and he wants to apologize to them who them what because god is humbling him and he and you know this about him being the richest black man and blah, blah. listen community family
2: the only thing i have to add is that i feel like karen atia's piece um in the Washington Post a few days back uh, was interesting to me because she talked about how Joe Rogan's not canceled and how Tucker Carlson's not canceled. So it's like, you know, these white boys who are out here being anti black and, you know, anti Semitic, all the things, they always manage to keep their coins. So I don't know. I just I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition, because I think miles to your earlier point around why protect Kanye then. I think. I think a lot of folks have trouble balancing anti blackness and anti semitism, right? Because if you're black and being anti semit, you know, and being an anti semite, it's like, oh, but they're black and how do we navigate this and what does that mean? And da 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 da. So I do think there's just like a lack of, especially in our culture, there's just like a lack of Clarity around how we address these, how we address these conversations, how we have construction, constructive conversations around them. And I think even more so when you have a person who's mentally ill at the center of a lot of it. It's like, how do we have that conversation within, you know, within that framework? But I just I just don't really see a lot of smart things or progressive things that are going to move us to progress happening around the Kanye West of it all. I mean, I just, I think we lost Kanye West many, many years ago, um, which was all, I've been mourning Kanye for a very long time because I remember him saying George Bush doesn't care about Black people in a very public way. Um, And I think the other big piece of this that often is left out is the Kardashians and the role the Kardashians played and continue to play in this saga they're completely unscathed completely unscathed in all of this right so i don't know miles it's up to you to write something that makes us understand what the hell is going on
3: (laughs) no (laughs) (laughs) well
0: while all kinds of things are happening with Kanye West and his advertisers and his followers and influencers, um, there are women all over the country who are still getting pregnant and who still need abortions despite the fact that many states have all but banned abortion. And um, there is a way that folks are getting access to medical abortions across the country through a covert network of folks. Um, then, And this is super risky, um, but it's also interesting to see how the world um, responds to um, this post-Roe decision. So there is a covert international network that is delivering tens of thousands of abortion pills in the wake of the recent Supreme Court decision and all of the subsequent um, state bans on abortion. and. Um, what The way it works is private donors pay activist suppliers in Mexico um, who send pills through the mail to United States volunteers all over the country um, in places where medical abortions are still legal. And those volunteers, through social media, through word of mouth, actually distribute them to pregnant women all over the country, Um And they give the example of a young woman who is in a state that, you know, where she can't get a medical abortion. And she types a desperate plaintiff on on Reddit and she's like, somebody help. And the people are like, "Uh, I'm in California. I have access to the abortion bills. I can mail it to you ASAP for free. She's like, wait, what? And they're like, yep, happy to help. No, it's super hard to get these with new with the new laws. And so that kind of thing is happening all over the place. Um, Apparently, it is much more safer than the back alley coat hanger abortions of days past. In fact, um, there is a quote from uh, the spokesperson for the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology says that. Um, medication, medication abortion is one of the safest processes that you can go through, um, as long as the pills that you receive are clearly labeled and you have the right directions. And so, this is what's happening: women are getting pills in the mail with directions about what to do. Um, it's all very clandestine. It's all very. Um, sort of legal, illegal in many places, um, but it is exploitative of lots of the loopholes that um, are currently available. And so I just thought it was an interesting take on, um, one, the pro-abortion movement's commitment to providing women with the safe health care that they need, Um, And I thought it was, you know, I think before information only came through major channels and now with the democratization of information flow through the Internet, there are lots of other things that are happening no matter what your laws say, you Republican people. Um, and so I, I was inspired at how pri- these private networks, there are nonprofit organizations, there are nurses, there are all of these folks who are working together to provide women with the health care that they need.
2: Yeah, Kai, I love this. Um, Powell actually did a story for Vice of, I don't even, I don't know time anymore, but a few months ago where the whole premise of it was how Organizers in Mexico and health providers in Mexico were, you know, taking women from Texas who needed abortions and they they seem to have a pretty good system, um, good system at it. So I think this is just, you know, more more evidence of that. And it's just this is it's just ridiculous, y'all.
3: Yeah, no, I echo all the statements made today <laughs> from y'all. Also, the other thought that 's going through my head that 's half baked, but just how we just create our own criminality uh, i shouldn 't say we, but America just creates its own criminality, meaning that just last year something was legal now this year something's illegal, and now it has to now you have to uh, risk <sighs> You have to risk your you know, you have to risk things in order to get what should be alright and that upset that just upsets me forever, even though I'm super proud of the organizers um taking this into their own hands.
2: This is a total aside, but I want to talk about it. Did y'all see the the video, the viral video going around about the white woman who was at I don't know. She was at some public hearing or some local government hearing about them wanting to get rid of books that had any mention of LGBTQ Um, Mm -hmm. representation in them. I just want to give a shout out. And I don't often do this to the white woman and I should know her name. But I was I was. was, Yes. She was like, you know where I was sexually assaulted in church (laughs) twice. Twice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But you know where I wasn't. (laughs) she was on it
2: she's like at a drag show that's where i've never been sexually assaulted i was like ma'am but i just again it's just like i think i see those types of things and i it does make me hopeful in all of this right because the only thing that really is going to make changes to get us back to any type of just human decency and normalcy um are our communities of people who aren't directly impacted right they're not impacted until they are impacted and so i feel like it is it's gonna it's gonna come down to that it's gonna come down to you know you know the, the not black women who are voting 96 percent for democrats and doing all the right things but all the others who are continually and with continue, continually and with even more momentum voting for these things that don't that don't serve us and that create um a lack Eight. of autonomy around our bodies
3: yeah, and you know I'm forever cynical. So in 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 certain in certain ways, because I just think sometimes the silence and the ignorance that's coming from certain spaces is so loud that one singular person making some sense then becomes like lauded or goes viral or whatever, and I'm like, there should be. At, like, this this should be so regular of what's happening and what's being said, and, and, and it should be said in small places, places without cameras, places with cameras. It should just be, that should just be the, the common speech, and the fact that it's not the common speech, it's what makes it sensational, what makes it goes viral, makes people feel like, oh, there's, where's where she at? Let's go get Starbucks with her, because she got some sense. It's like, no, there should be, there should be just so many people saying those same things and being so loud about it, and it's, it's, you know, a little sad that it goes viral because part of it's because it's rare. It, if it was regular, it wouldn't have the the sensational tie to it.
0: I'm not cynical sometimes, um, but <laughs> <laughs> most of the time, most of the time I'm an optimist. And I actually do think that in a lot of regular people spaces and a lot of regular communities where people actually know their neighbors and care about living together, that like people... Don't, they might not get down with your thing, but they are not going to stop you from doing your thing. And I think that there are lots of places in everyday America where regular people are figuring this stuff out, figuring out how they want to live. Um, one of the organizations that I'm a part of actually highlights. Communities where people are working together across difference because it is just kind of regular and it's some it's in some states that you wouldn't imagine it's happening. I mean, happening all over. But that doesn't that's not clickbait. That doesn't sell. You know that doesn't sell ads and so there's not a lot of coverage and so we go back to this conversation about the media's ability to control the narrative and to sell us what is happening in the united states whether it is or it isn't based on what they want to convey and so i'm hopeful um that even in spaces where i mean there was it was a dark day in the united states when the supreme court killed roe and Kansas happened. And these people are up and doing their thing. And, and there's stuff that we don't even know about. And so I am, I'm I'm, hopeful for, about all of the things that we don't know that are happening where people are taking care of each other the way in the America that I want to live in.
3: Yes. And just to be clear, I'm not cynical about those small communities in, in places. I'm just cynical about White womanhood and how and how it's going to be positioned in political in me, in media. I'm like, fair, I'm like, Come enough, on. fair <laughs> enough, fair
4: enough, fair enough. Oh
1: goodness! Well, don't go anywhere. More potate the people's coming. Don't let election day sneak up on you this year. There's a lot on your ballot, and you don't want to get caught off guard. Vote Save America is here to help you figure out the who, what, when, and where voting. Use the tool on the site to learn about every position, candidate, and ballot measure you're voting on and build your own ballot to use as a handy voting cheat sheet. Next, you can find your times, places, and options for voting and make a plan all in one place. November 8th, Election Day, is your last chance to vote. Head to votesaveamerica.com to make sure you're ballot ready. ATLP.com slash people.
2: So, my news is about. Oh, it's in, the, it's in The Guardian. I actually hadn't seen anything. I hadn't seen this anywhere else but The Guardian. But Mumia Abu Jamal, who is one of the most well-known Black Panthers who has been in jail for as long as I've been alive. That's how long he's been in jail. Evidently, there's new evidence that he believes, he and his legal team believes, will exonerate him. Evidently, listen to how wild this is. There was a storage room in the Philadelphia district attorney's office where there were six filing boxes marked with his name that had evidence in them. Six filing boxes. So, and these, this evidence was not made known prior to 2018. So, his lawyers are arguing that the boxes have highly significant evidence, which the Commonwealth, Pennsylvania, never previously disclosed. And the new evidence shows that the client's convictions were t- was was tainted. Well, we all know the conviction was tainted, quite frankly. But I just I wanted to bring this to the pod, one, because like no one it doesn't seem like anybody's talking about this. And two you know, talk about the activists and the movement leaders we have today, but the ones that we've had over decades before many of us were born are still suffering and being persecuted for the activism that they did for our freedom, fighting for our freedom and liberation years ago, decades ago. So, you know, when I think about the you know, the children of the Panthers that I've worked with or have had the honor of engaging with. The level of trauma that exists within these families, they still have incarcerated parents. Some of them had parents that were incarcerated, both mother and father, for decades. Thinking about Ashada Shakur and how she's still, she's been in Cuba since I don't know when. You know, she's still on the FBI Most Wanted list. It's just Leonard Peltier, who's, you know, indigenous, also still incarcerated. It It is... I think it's easy for us, particularly, you know, you get into your privileged life and your day-to-day and you forget about how many political prisoners that we have in the United States. You know, we, we continue to have this conversation around Brittany Griner and we need to continue to need to have it. But there's so many other folks of color who are forgotten and, yeah, I just it just makes i just it makes me equally sad, devastated and really angry.
1: The first thing i'll say with this one is um i was talking to somebody the other day about the innocence project, you know, who who famously did pioneered wrongful conviction work around dna evidence is that the innocence project started in 1992. That's wild, right? And we know that wrongful convictions existed way before 1992. And the presence of the Innocence Project created an entire field of work around wrongful convictions, not just DNA, but a host of other things. So you think about Momio, who got convicted way before, you know, this moment, just like all those people who DAs just screwed over and there wasn't even like a legal infrastructure to deal with it. So in Mamiya's case, you know, 70% of Black jurors were struck, all that sort of stuff. But there just wasn't a, like, there wasn't, like, a structure to even push back in a way that was substantive. And, like, that's what I think about. Like, I'm I'm always surprised when I, like, tell myself the Innocence Project started in 92. And, whew.
2: I mean,
0: I, I think um, we continue. I, I, This stuff is so complicated. Um, And it is such like there are such clear patterns of prosecutorial misconduct that, like, if we really wanted to figure this out, we could. And I think it is just clear from the city of Philadelphia that they they are not interested in seeking justice. It doesn't matter that this man has been in jail for 40 years. Like, you could get to the bottom of it and you don't want to. And that is... That's that. Um, and it's it's like we know about Mumia, but there are, as DeRay said, you know, thousands upon thousands of other people whose names we don't know. And um, I, I mean, he keeps getting and, and uh, you know, we know about him and he has people who are advocating for him and he has people who are funding his defense and all of that stuff they are regular old people who don't have anybody fighting for them who don't get another chance who don't when there's new evidence or whatnot nothing different happens um and you know I don't know this just reminds me of how jacked up this whole thing is
1: my news is about the mortality rate of black mothers. I'm interested in this. I like am trying to just as a, you know, as an organizer, I'm like, what is the fix? I'm super interested in the mortality rate of black of black mothers. So you probably already know that black baby babies born to black mothers are twice as likely to die in the first month than infants born to white women. We've known that for a long time. But there's a new study that just came out that showed that the disparity is even wider among infants conceived through in vitro fertilization, the the mortality rate of kids born through IVF to black mothers. So the researchers analyzed data for all US births involving single babies, so not twins, from 2016 to 17, so more than 7.5 million births. And of those, more than 93,000 children were conceived through IVF. And the findings showed that the death rates were four times higher among newborns up to 28 days old who were born to Black mothers who used fertility technologies involving eggs or embryos. The death rate was 1.6% among babies born to Black mothers compared to just 0.3% for babies born to white mothers. And what's interesting about it is reading about this, there were you know doctors who... We're sort of like, we thought, you know, they were interested in doing this, but they thought that there wouldn't be the disparities because to even afford IVF means that you get a level of care and service and attention that might not be what people traditionally get when they're um, giving birth. But instead, we saw that the racial disparities and the systemic mistreatment of Black women persist. So it really did just surprise me. I was fascinated by this and I left trying to understand better like what we can do structurally.
2: Oh why, why, why? If I get one more piece of news about how I might die in childbirth. Somebody sent me some adoption agencies on my um, on my Twitter. I don't know how to access those DMs but You can send them there
0: (laughs) on a totally random note. uh, Shout out Dr. Madeline Sutton, OBGYN in Atlanta, who is quoted in this article. Who's one of my friends from college. Yay. Um, Anywho y'all, this is bananas, right? And the thing that it made me think about is how many of my friends who are middle and upper class, black women who have put off childbearing to later years because they were building careers that would build generational wealth for themselves, that would realize their parents and their ancestors' wildest dreams, the fulfillment of all of the education that people have invested in them and all of that jazz, and they finally get around to having kids, many of them at a later age, have to go through fertility treatments. And, like, if you told these women that that their children were more likely to die, like, hell, what, like, what, what do you, what, 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 what can you do? Like, you've done all the things, you went to college, you did the, you got a job, you might have a great family, you might be by yourself or whatever. And now you just want to have a baby and, and you get better care, more care, because you're paying a whole lot of money. And your, your kid is four times more likely to die. Like the, the, the most interesting part, as you said, Duray is that These differences, like, not Asian, not Pacific Islander, not Hispanic mothers, like, compared to Black mothers. Like, I, I mean, I love being a Black woman. Really, I do. But it is, I I mean, we can't do nothing easy. Nothing comes out, like, I... I don't know. This was stunning. Thank you for sharing it. I put it in my little group chat with my girlfriends
2: because like people need to know this. I'm also just sitting here with like, like just even in my little office, like outsmart endometriosis book, nurture a book on pregnancy by my friend, Erica Cheetah, the Cheetah, a woman code, a power source to your cycle, your fertility, your se- There are there is no place, no dedicated place in the world <laughs> where you can go and find out about your woman parts. Like there's just, there's just not a place. And if you are a black woman, that's even doubly true. And also if you do find out something about your body and something that may be a diagnosis, they can't tell you why. Why do black women get fibroids more than white women? We don't know. Is it because of perms it because of chick like what can you please can somebody give us a sign not or perms and chicken <laughs> perms and chicken that's absolutely right that is like absolutely what, right what what is it so I think this is just this is something I spiral about often because this becomes life or death for black women it does like on top of all the other things around you know being that person in the family that does all the things or being the person that takes care of all the kids or being that person that you know, is trying to be the backbone of the community. On top of all that, it is not your your health, even though we live in the most resource place in the world, your health is not guaranteed. And to Kaya's point, even if you did do all the things you're supposed to do, and even if you do have the resources, still your health is not guaranteed. So I think, you know, I can go on and on about this, but I it's one of those things that always, like, really, really confuses me because... There's, there's more urgency and more conversation around it now. And there's so many studies that talk about all the deficiencies, but where are the studies and the solutions that can get us to better statistics?
3: Yeah, and to your, um, your point, Kaya, there's nothing wrong with being a black woman or a black man or a black person it's really the white world that we find ourselves in that causes the terror. Say
0: that continuous. again, Mom.
3: Thank you,
0: Jesus. Say that. I needed
3: that. Mm. It's just, that's the continuous source of uh, this kind of emotional, intimate terrorism that we experience, and a lot of those diseases, a lot of those circumstances that we find ourselves in are both environmental. A lot of a lot of these things are environmental so again it's that white world that is manifesting in us and 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 creating these dire uh circumstances
1: hey you're listening to pod save the people don't go anywhere there's more to come
4: as a chef and a restaurant owner i'm as meticulous about my cookware as i am about my ingredients that's why i love made in cookware each pan they make isn't just designed to perform it's crafted to last as a mom i love that i can trust made in It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware.
5: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley High Performance Sofas and Recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean shop the high performance furniture in store or online at ashley.com ashley for the love of home
4: here you are BPMs high sweat dripping body moving tongue panting you're working hard real hard and you're thirsty you need vitamins nutrients for peak performance and energy and your plants do too Aww. i mean just look at the little guy Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not.
1: This week, we welcome health equity researcher Dr. Lawrence Brown to talk about his new book, The Black Butterfly, The Harmful Politics of Race and Space in America. We met during the protests in Baltimore a long time ago. And now that his book's out, I get to see the culmination of so much of his research, work that he's tweeted about, I've heard him talk about, but now I got to read it for myself and you can too. The Black Butterfly sheds light on the causes of segregation in Baltimore, including measures embedded in current legislation and regulatory policies to help understand the dynamics at play in many American cities. I love the book because it not only focuses on the challenges at hand, but really does talk through solutions about Black neighborhoods. Here we go. So many gems. Let's do it. Dr. Lawrence Brown, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People.
6: Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
1: So excited to talk about your
6: latest book, The Black Butterfly. And
1: before we start to talk about the specifics of the book, can you tell us how you got interested in studying neighborhoods? Like what was your, did you always care about the way neighborhoods were sort of designed and the racial disparities? Did you like read an article in college and you were like, I'm gonna track this down? Like, what was your beginning?
6: Well, I mean, I think just growing up as a kid in the deep South in, in Arkansas in Texas, that I, you know, was always fascinated by the structure of cities and you know how things are laid out. Um, you know, you definitely notice things like which neighborhoods have resources and which neighborhoods don't. So when I arrived at Morehouse in ninety seven. Uh, it didn't take long for me to decide my major was going to be African-American studies. So, you know, that's a field interdisciplinary field where you learn, you know, take classes in sociology, psychology, history, religion. So that you run the whole gamut across, you know, a wide array of social sciences. And so I really just, you know, thought about, you know, I wanted to know what are the factors, what are the things that contribute to, you know, Uh, Black people being able to move forward in this country and hoping to one day make a contribution.
1: Now, I had heard of redlining, obviously, in college, but I didn't know until the book that it seems like the beginning of redlining was the residential security maps. Did I get that right? Yes. And what is the significance of those residential security maps in the context of Baltimore? And how would you explain redlining to people who have heard of it a little bit but, like, don't really know what it means?
6: Well, there's two stories actually to be told. I mean, the residential security maps were created by a federal agency called the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, which had a subdivision under it called the Homeowners Loan Corporation. So the Homeowners Loan Corporation under this federal agency created these residential security maps and they had the four primary colors on them, red, yellow, blue and green. And so, you know, as you might imagine, Those colors are very similar to a stoplight uh, that we see when we drive. And the meaning is virtually the same. If you live like in a green or blue neighborhood, banks love you. They're going to give you a low interest rate. Uh, You're going to get, you know, a higher amount for buying your home. If you live in a yellow community, the banks are going to be more skittish. They were looking at those communities as being more at risk. And then if you lived in a red community, Banks were not willing to lend oftentimes at all. Um, And if you read Antero Patel's book, Not in My Neighborhood, he talks about how these he has a chapter called Mapping Bigotry. And he talks about sort of the racialized eugenics uh, that undergirded those four different colors. So, you know, in the green and blue communities, you had white Anglo-Saxon. In the blue communities, you often had Jewish folks. In the yellow communities, you often had european immigrants uh often from poland or italy or russia and then in the red communities you had african americans or urban native americans and so you know these colors were actually uh reflecting a racialized ideology about which group of people deserved to have access to capital and then the weight of the federal government would be behind it now i said there were two stories because actually Research I'm doing now that's not in this book is telling the story of another federal agency, the Federal Housing Administration, that actually had their own redlining scheme. Um, And unlike the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which, yeah, unlike the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which is an agency that no longer exists because it was a New Deal administration, the Federal Housing Administration is very much alive and well. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's... It's amazing to learn that redlining was so deeply supported and condoned and enforced by the United States government.
1: It was wild to see the chart that you put in because Baltimore, Flint, Detroit, Chicago, St. Louis, uh, St. Louis County, Birmingham, Cleveland, and Milwaukee, the vast majority of those I know personally have problems with the police. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is really, this is really wild. Okay. So one of the things that you help us sort of think through is how housing and how, uh, like where people choose to live is both a public health issue, is an economic issue, is a crime issue. Um, I-, I didn't know that public housing in Baltimore was decreasing at the rate that it is, for instance. Uh why do you think those things are happening in, in big urban cities? Is there a way to offset those? And, and like, what's the consequence of the decrease in public housing?
6: Well, one thing in that question that I want to sort of unpack is the notion that people, the African-Americans, haven't always had a choice in terms of where they lived. I mean, up until 1968, the passage of the Fair Housing Act uh, or the Open Housing Act, Black people did not legally have a choice, oftentimes, in terms of where they could live. I mean, Baltimore helped pioneer everything from racial zoning in 1910. The Roland Park Company, one of our neighborhoods here in Baltimore, helped pioneer community-wide racially restrictive covenants in ni- by 1912. Uh, you know, and then St. Louis passed a residential racial zoning ordinance by a referendum in 1916. So and then you had racially restrictive, I mentioned racially restrictive covenants. Those didn't become illegal until 1948 when the Supreme Court handed down Shelley versus Kramer. So black people have not had mobility. Black people specifically, according to law, have not been able oftentimes to choose where they live. And because you have a perverse real estate market in this country that encoded race into the property values of homes. And the encoding was if Black people lived in the community, then the value of the homes went down, according to the real estate assessors, which is a, this racist calculation that was embedded deeply in the real estate industry. So even today, when there's a quote unquote choice. There's still the notion that very strongly exists in many neighborhoods that if you have a certain percentage of black people, the property values will go down. So then you will see what people often refer to as white flight if black people are moving in. And so I think it's so even though there's more choice now, this real estate market is still highly perverse. And so to your question about public housing, you know, that was another Federal agency again, you know, you had the United States Public Housing Authority, uh, and during the war, World War II, you had, you know, oftentimes uh, the federal public housing agency that was placing troops into homes because they needed to make sure that they were able to be secure for the war effort, and so, like here in Baltimore, uh, black troops who are black defense workers. You know, who were fighting Hitler and Mussolini overseas, who went to help liberate France and Italy from the Nazis and fascists. Those same black troops were facing another war at home where white Americans, white Baltimoreans did not want black troops living in their communities. So then those public housing communities got placed in places like Cherry Hill, South Baltimore that today is almost 95, 100% Black. You know, they place four different public housing communities in one neighborhood, but yet we have white neighborhoods like Roland Park, Guilford, Homeland, Mount Washington that have zero public housing communities. So that's what you see with public housing is that first there's this intentional concentration of public housing in Black neighborhoods. And then what you see with public housing today is really sort of the privatization of public housing, the dismantling of public housing, decreasing. Congress really never funded public housing maintenance to begin with. So these properties oftentimes become dilapidated. Then because they're not maintained well, they end up having to close many of them down. And now many of them are giving vouchers, housing choice vouchers to move into the private market. But even then those vouchers are often only accepted in low-income Black neighborhoods. So even the vouchers don't really promote desegregation the way that they should. And that's how public housing becomes this other very powerful system in terms of enforcing urban apartheid.
1: And in places like Baltimore, you know, most of the cities that are in the Category 5 are um, Baltimore, Detroit, Chicago, St. Louis, Birmingham, are Black-led like they're not, you know, these are not Republican strongholds today. Do you think that those mayors and city councils just don't get it? Like they don't get the the history and the long-term implication. Do you think they just don't care? Do you think that they don't have the money? Like what's the what's the what on the housing stuff?
6: You know, I think with those cities, you know, they are Democrat led, but I think the, the real interesting thing about um, American history is that you know, we sort of have amnesia. You know, we think today the Republican Party is the racist party, and it most certainly is. It's a neo-Confederate party that's trying to make America great again. But I think what you people don't realize is that the Democratic Party was the party in Baltimore that was in power. It was actually Mayor James Preston, who was a Democrat. It was, and then before him, it was Mayor John Barry Mahul, Democrat that pushed the racial zoning ordinance, that pushed to make Baltimore segregated. So Democrats also have this like very strong racist legacy of creating and then maintaining urban apartheid. And I think it's that notion about Democrats, that history that isn't faced by the Democratic Party that I think lends itself to this situation where you have Democrat-led strongholds urban in urban areas but not having the concern for black neighborhoods and not addressing the history and the harm and the damage that was inflicted by these policies and and taking ownership and accountability for their role in many of the issues we see today
1: boom now what I love about um, what I love about the way the book is set up is that it's not just like a hopeless, we're screwed, right? It's not like uh, hey, here's a history of how we got screwed over with school systems being underfunded and you know, housing being screwed up. But you do offer some ideas about what we can do. One of them, so we'd love to talk about that. Um, one that I was like, ha, oh, I never heard this a foreclosure and eviction prevention fund. Yeah. What would that I mean, do?
6: Because well, Many of the solutions I try to pose are trying to address direct harms. So the harm that that tries to address is particularly subprime loans that were targeting African-Americans and up and down the income range, you know, where, in fact, if you look at Prince George's County, the wealthiest black county in the nation, you have tons of black folks down there. That were given these loans where they had to pay a higher interest rate than their white counterparts. Even if they had identical credit scores, paid the same down payment, they would still be offered these loans. And sometimes those loans had adjustable rate mortgages, so you would have like a five percent interest rate, and then it would jump in the middle of the mortgage to an eight percent, you know, interest rate, and now you have to pay this sort of ballooning payment. So that type of Activity where Black people are forced, Black homeowners are paying more for their mortgages, putting them more at risk for foreclosure. The undervaluation that I talked about earlier with real estate assessors devaluing Black homes. Again, look at Prince George's County in Maryland where uh, the same you could have a house built by the same builder, same floor plan as a house built a county over in Montgomery County, and it can be worth two, $300,000 less than a home in Prince George's County. And so that's where you get into these very perverse real estate, you know, lending assessment that leave black home owners at risk for being foreclosed on. And then definitely all of these issues combined to hurt black renters as well. So then they're more likely to be evicted, so the the if that's the harm, then the solution is how do we provide stability? How do we make sure folks are not being foreclosed on, w- particularly when they're being exposed to the, these predatory financial practices?
1: Boom, listeners! When you read the book, the cool thing is that it does end with like a whole set of uh, solutions. Like this is not a hopeless. History. I feel like I've, I've read so many things where I read and I'm like, well, we're screwed. And then this one is like, we are, we have been screwed, but there is a way out. Um, can you tell people where they can go to keep up to date with what you're doing? Is there a website? Is it Twitter? Is it Facebook? Like, how do people stay in touch with you?
6: I am basically have a great website, www.theblackbutterflyproject.com. You know, folks can go on there, see my work. Um I've actually decreased my social media footprint, so I'm not on Twitter anymore, not on uh, TikTok. I deleted a lot of stuff so I could just be more focused. But, um, you know, hopefully you can look and see, you know, whenever I'm giving major talks or discussions, uh, check those out uh, online. And, you know, you can definitely come out and see me when I do those who sort of feel like they've read all the books, they
1: were at the protests, they sat in the city council hearings, they, you know, sent in the emails and they feel like nothing has changed or that it's sort of hopeless. What do you say
6: to those people? You know, I would say that in the large scope of American history, that it's always been a struggle. And I would say even though, and I would say it's also true that progress is often followed by backlash. And that's one thing I talk about in the book, these white lashes. Um, So, you know, America's really famous for taking two steps forward and then four steps back. Um, And so I think, you know, we have to have this understanding about American history that, you know, a lot of I think the way we're taught about America is this sort of notion of exceptionalism, that we're always moving forward that progress is always happening. And no, that's this this is America. Backlash against black progress is American's character. But I think the good news is that whenever people who are part of the abolition democracy movement and I'm using a term by W.B. Du Bois in his book Black Reconstruction that he wrote in 1935, you know, this notion that if you're part of the abolition democracy, then if you look at history, whenever the this movement of abolition democracy folks organize, they win. We win. You know, we won the Civil War. We whooped the Confederates. Black soldiers joined the Union Army and saved the nation. You know, civil rights workers organized and they defeated Plessy versus Ferguson in court. Then they passed the three great civil rights laws in the 60s, 64 Civil Rights Act, 65 Voting Rights Act, 68 Fair Housing Act, you know, put a black president in the White House. Never been done before, you know, and then now we're facing the potential reemergence of the neo-fascist president that we had in the last administration. And we won the last election. So anytime we organize, we win. Anytime we really organize, we win. So there's the hope that I think we should look at. We should be looking at these examples and we should be thinking that it's always a struggle. America never accepts change and then allows it to just, oh, well, we lost. Like, no, folks who are trying to hold on to the days of yore will always continue to fight. So I think that's the the sort of gumption that we have to have is that just because there's some backlash, it doesn't mean you stop. It doesn't mean you lose hope. It means we got to reload and keep moving forward. Boom. Well, we consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into to Pods of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Positive P was a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Charlotte Lands. Executive produced by me and special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, DR Ballinger, and Miles Johnson.